Hey Habibis, just wanted to let you all know that Habibdi Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is super important to me and others because it's a progressive group of voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives that we see in right-wing and liberal media presently today. We're also working with the Left Journal Passage as a founding partner to build a media ecosystem that creates space for left progressive voices in Canadian discourse. Passage has been doing amazing work covering topics that have not been covered very well and mainstream media so the eviction blitzes kind of canada's media corporate bias and the liberal government's attempts presently to uh, claw back serb uh, which is horrible and awful for many canadians right now when the rules were so confusing and so i want to recommend some shows uh, that are part of this network that i personally enjoy so rob rousseau's 49th parallel as well as Feel Rouge, which is an indigenous storytelling series that featured stories from indigenous communities in the far north of Quebec. This episode of Habibdi Please was graciously produced by Andre Goulet, who is the executive director of Harbinger Media Network. And Harbinger Media is listener supported, so please head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and subscribe where you can get subscriber-specific content. So yeah, hope you all enjoy the show today. Hey, Ryan, did you see the bill that was just voted on on February 24th? Yeah, Bill C-213, the Pharmacare bill. Which is super interesting, given that this country has been promised Pharmacare by the Liberal Party since 1992, before you were even born. Yeah, you're giving away my age here, but yes, it's been a long time. (laughs) Giving away both of our ages. I was born (laughs) But anyways... um, What's interesting is that this is the second time that they've had this vote within a three-year period. Yeah, it keeps coming on the agenda, and it just seems like no progress is being made. No, and if anything, when we look at the breakdown between the 2018 uh, bill that was uh, the sponsor of the motion was Don Davies that time, and this time it was um, Peter Julian, there's just a big difference. Um, If you want to talk a little bit about it, and yeah, if we can just break it down a little. Yeah, and so in the 2018 motion that was put forward by Don Davies, um, that that vote also failed. It was a 43 yes, 247 no. Um, and, you know, pretty standard, all the Liberals and Conservative voted no, the NDP voted yes, um, though the NDP had more seats back then. And just like um, a few Liberal anomalies, mainly just four. Yeah, um, and now we have 141 liberal no's, 119 conservative no's with a few liberal conservative anomalies and the 24 NDP voting yes. Um, Oh, also the block voted no both times. And the block has expanded, which is really interesting in how the number has shifted so much as a result. Yeah, we have Jody Jody Wilson-Raybould shifting her vote. And we have what like what I think is really interesting, given more knows, is that the pandemic has grinded people down, and um, these MPs keep talking about how they care about the Canadian people and the Canadian people's health care, but they were so compelled to vote no this time to yep. universal pharmacare. Yep, in the middle of a pandemic where 
even in Ontario specifically, we're talking about our lack of sick days and just the lack of good health policy as a whole in this country and our provinces. And so it, it just feels ridiculous that we're fighting for what feels like the bare minimum in a time when we need better healthcare. I think Canada is the only um, OECD country that has universal health care that also doesn't have universal pharmacare. And so we're really lagging behind. It's like we're, we're not comparing ourselves to the US here because that's comparing ourselves to nothing. But comparing ourselves to other countries that do have universal health care, we are lagging behind. And when we think about it, the history of pharmacare in Canada, it's been over 24 years that it's been promised and many Canadians can't afford medication. Um, one of the conservative talking points uh, that you saw, can you expand on it a bit? Like, what was the argument that person was making? Yeah, so I was looking at the debates on the motion uh, that that just failed. And a couple of conservatives were talking about how a lot of Canadians do have private health insurance that expands beyond what a universal pharmacare bill would include. And so I don't really know what they're talking about when they say that, yeah, especially that because, no yeah, especially because the statistic given was 95 to 98% of Canadians have um, some form of universal extended healthcare benefit. That doesn't mean that that's necessarily good. When I think about my healthcare that I have, my extended healthcare benefits through my school, my med- my medicines cost me. $50 a week to, sorry, my medicines cost me $50 every two weeks in deductibles. And sometimes I forego them because what's the point of, of paying, of paying that so often? And that is with a student plan. And so when they say everyone has um, some form of health care that's extended beyond what's covered in our provinces, I really question the efficacy of that. Yeah. And I was uh, telling you before, but like last year I had a biopsy for something and then it's like an embarrassing kind of process when you're uninsured. And I was working at a college, which is like, people just assume if you're unionized and you're at a college, you have a healthcare plan, but that's not the case. I was working at a college, but the union did not cover, um, and the college did not cover any type of healthcare plan. So I went to the pharmacy and this is what a lot of people have to do. You have to go to the pharmacy to show the pharmacist what you've been prescribed and then it's an embarrassing like can you tell me how much this is and if it's a certain price you forego it and literally I was like oh what's the dupe for this to the pharmacist and she laughed and she was like polysporin I was like girl I'm getting polysporin because that costs way too much so I'm just gonna it's it's whatever but like that's like not even a serious one like what if I had something much more serious where there's no dupe which is the case for many Canadians yep yeah um and people ration insulin here. I still think people ration insulin here Yeah. Um, who are unemployed and precarious or like jobs that are precarious and under the table. Like those people are not employed. Like I think computer jobs, I mean, employed, insured, like I think computer jobs, people are employed, like jobs yeah. where you, you sit and do emails all day and can work from home. But um, I don't think like a lot of people have benefits. Like if you work at like a grocery store. Yeah. Or anybody in the gig economy, like do Uber yeah. drivers get benefits? Yeah, um, Foodora got gutted when they unionized, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and those people like Uber, so like Uber drivers, um, they have no insurance benefits. They don't have dental. They don't have any types of benefits. So like if somebody's a diabetic person who drives Uber, yeah. they're paying a lot of money 
Yep. And Uber actually fights to even classify them as employees. Uber tries to classify them as contractors. Um, that's an ongoing battle right now in the courts. But, you know, you can see how even if even where there are potential avenues for benefits, companies try and skirt out of them. So there's just so many holes and cracks that people can fall through if we don't have a proper social support net for pharma care. And what's like very interesting is this is just like a preface to our chat with Don Davies, who was the 2018 um, sponsor of that, that bill that had more yeses to be quite frank, but we can understand that the, the composition of the house of commons has also shifted um, radically um, in the last few years. But um, it's been pointed out by Don Davies this week on Twitter that the liberals even have put um, Canada, like Canadian pharmacare in throne speeches. Yep. As a priority. And that gives us the impression that they're working on it. Although I think neither of us trust what the liberals might put out as their pharmacare plan. And so with that, I want to actually talk about some of the talking points on why the most recent bill failed. A lot of people were saying, a lot of liberals were saying that this new bill, it would exacerbate provincial federal tensions. It's too prescriptive. It's unconstitutional. I don't think it's unconstitutional. I, when I look at the bill, it might be a little over prescriptive in the conditions that it imposes for a province to accept the money. So the way the bill works to implement universal pharmacare is that the federal government would transfer money to the provinces on the condition that they use that money to institute a public pharmacare program. And is that the same way long-term care homes work? Long-term care homes, it's the same way that our regular healthcare system works as well. It's up to the provinces how they want to administer it. And the federal government just gives them money to do so. Although I think with this pharmacare bill, there, there are a couple more restrictions than would normally be the case, but that doesn't make the bill unconstitutional because it's always up to provinces to reject the money and not institute pharmacare if they wanted to. And so maybe that would defeat the purpose of the bill, but it doesn't mean that it's unconstitutional if provinces don't have to take the money to begin with. Yeah, and um, there have been people who have said that the provincial jurisdiction argument is inaccurate. Like, is this what you're observing as well? I think so. I think, well, first and foremost, healthcare is a shared jurisdiction. Anybody who says that it's only provincial is not looking at the big picture. It is a shared jurisdiction. The best example is how the federal government is involved with approving vaccines, the mm-hmm. COVID vaccine, to come into Canada. Which is the slowest roll out ever yeah, but that's a different ever. topic yeah, different topic we're gonna die unvaccinated <laughs> ryan yeah seriously <laughs> and we live in the highest outbreak regions in ontario um but so. um i don't know if you saw but basically the nova scotia liberal mps um called what the ndp did uh political theater because of this um provincial kind of argument yeah yeah uh some liberals were describing it as a motion doomed to fail Although even if it was, which I don't think it was, good on them for putting this back on the table and getting people to talk about it again. Because if people, I think the liberals count on people forgetting what their promises were. Mm -hmm. And so 
because of this motion, we're talking about it again. There are news articles about it again, and people are debating whether we should implement pharmacare. And it feels like this debate never ends, but I think the tone seems to have shifted where people just seem fed up for the, la- for the fact that we haven't had it after so long. And as like people who are fed up with um, kind of this energy that Nikki uh, described as like liberal Tory, same old story, and others have said, um, it's, I think before this episode rolls with Don Davies that we just, we did in the fall, it'd be good to touch on um, what Tommy Douglas actually envisioned. Um, so for those who don't know, Tommy Douglas is known as the father of universal healthcare in Canada. Um, yeah, he is the one who originally implemented the universal healthcare system that was that the entire country modeled it on because he started in Saskatchewan with his progressive government at the time. Which is super interesting because as we've said on this show before, a lot of Canadian political coverage and people like just believe that like Ontario is a hub for like everything that happens in the rest of this country. And so it's really interesting to see somebody from the prairies as actually the kind of um, the brain behind this healthcare system that we like love to brag about. Yep. And the prairies really have led a lot of the major um, progressive developments that we have in this country when we think about the Winnipeg general strike mm-hmm. and the workers' rights that came after that, universal health care coming out of Saskatchewan, um, indigenous rights coming out of the the prairies, uh, the whole country really, but but I think there's always something special in the prairies. And we have been really lucky to talk to MPs from the prairies and get to go into the history and the really unique, um aspects that they contribute to canadian life and so this is i think another one and what's super interesting is that um, tommy douglas also was the first leader of the ndp yeah yeah so so it's interesting that um the ndp has this like framework and this man who envisioned that teeth were also included pharmaceuticals were included so this guy was thinking about like social determinants of health Ryan and I had a fun time talking to Don Davies yes he had a lot of really interesting things to say in his role as health critic Um, and it's super timely right now as the pharmacare bill just failed but we're all talking about it and so we really hope you enjoy what he has to say on to the show Hi, listeners. This week, we're graciously joined by Don Davies. He's a member of Parliament. In the 42nd Parliament, Davies introduced more private members legislation than any other MP in Canada. He was first elected uh, during the 2008 federal election and is presently the federal member of Parliament uh, for the NDP. He is a member representing the NDP, um, and he represents the riding of Vancouver Kingsway. Uh, And after the 2019 election, Davies was reappointed as the NDP critic for health in the 43rd parliament. And today Ryan and I are super excited to have uh, Don Davies join us. Thanks for joining us, Don. It's my pleasure. Great, so we are really excited to talk to you today about a variety of things. We know you are critic for health, so we do have some questions about health, pharmacare, dental care. We're also interested in your thoughts on the second wave of the pandemic and the handling of that. Um, But we're also really excited to talk about, um, you know, Canada-US relations, Canada-China, some of the the issues that have been going on there, including Biden's win, as well as like global left movements, like in Bolivia, we've recently seen 
So we are really excited to have that discussion with you. Um, how are you doing today generally, though? Well, uh, I'm doing fine, thanks. Um, I'm here in Vancouver. Uh, you know, we've, like millions of Canadians, have had to really dramatically adjust the way that we live and work and interact. So um, I'm fortunate in some ways. Uh, BC has done a fairly good job during the pandemic. And we have a new Democrat government, the only one in the country at the moment. Uh, so I think, I don't think those things are, are unrelated. I, I think the fact that we have a government that is investing in public services in our healthcare system and putting people before the typical corporate uh, minded interests of most governments has, has, has contributed a great deal to making sure that we've done a better job. Um, but I am, like millions of Canadians, really looking forward to the time when we can uh, get a successful vaccine or treatment for COVID-19 and hopefully try to restore to a new normal. And um, I'm looking forward to talking about what that new normal looks like, because like a lot of people, I think there's a real opportunity to, uh, to create a new normal that's much better than the one that we had before the pandemic. And thinking about what healthcare systems could be like, um, let's talk a bit about pharmacare. Um, you know, that's obviously something you've been pushing um, and it was on the NDP platform. It was actually also on the Liberal platform. And so we're curious as to know what is the status in Parliament about that? Because we just, you know, a lot of things have gotten sidelined because of the pandemic, but that's still something that a lot of Canadians care about. And so I'm curious as to know what, from your end of things, like what do you see the status um, of pharmacare? Well, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, the status is it's very timely. Um, it's November 12th today as we speak. And in a week, the NDP's first bill that we will be debating in Parliament is Bill C-213, which is the Canada Pharmacare Act. So what we've done is we've done the work for the government and we have uh, with stakeholders and patient groups and health professionals and experts across the country, we have developed the legal framework for delivering universal, comprehensive public pharmacare. I want to pause and say... Um, I'm of two minds when we mention the Liberals in their platform, because the Liberals to this day from 2015 have never, ever committed to public pharmacare. Mm -hmm. So they'll talk about national pharmacare or universal pharmacare, but that could easily be a U.S. style public private patchwork, which is exactly what we should not be doing. The NDP has been pushing for universal comprehensive pharmacare delivered seamlessly through our Medicare system, just like any other Medicare service that's covered by the Canada Health Act. And I'll be happy to go through the many reasons why that's a better way to go. Uh, and the other thing when you say platform is I, I always note that the Liberals first mentioned their commitment to universal public pharmacare this time in 1997. So it's been 23 years that Liberals have been talking about pharmacare and they've had a number of majority governments since then and minorities and opportunities to bring it in and they never have. So um, I'm calling uh, BS on liberal claims that they are really in favor of pharmacare. They talk about it, they don't do it. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. yeah, so I, mean, I think actually, it's time. Let's talk about, let's talk about universality and, and public pharmacare because I agree, I 
I don't think we would have faith that even if they did implement it, that it would be public, um, which, you know, if it is a patchwork, all that does is drive up costs. But let's talk about some of the other benefits of having a public system that's universal. Well, there's been at least seven different task forces, committees, royal commissions, Senate, House of Commons, uh, examinations of pharmacare, and they always come to the same conclusion. And these are not lefty groups, right? Sometimes it's the parliamentary budget officer who's a conservative accountant. Uh, sometimes it's the um, it was the Hall Commission, uh, which was a, a Supreme Court justice in the 60s. It doesn't matter who comes to the examination, they come to the same conclusion, which is um, the fairest, most efficient way to make sure every Canadian gets access to the medication and devices that they need to stay healthy is through the public health care system. And the reason for that is there's a number of really uh, concrete reasons. So for instance, number one is bulk buying. If you had the federal government leading a, consor a consortium of provinces that was buying medication, negotiating with the big pharma companies for 37 million Canadians, you can drive down costs by 40%, just with that, that one factor alone. So it, Number two, streamlined administration. Right now in Canada, this is hard to believe, there are over 100,000 different extended healthcare plans that administer uh, benefits like pharmacare. Um, if you got rid of all those and just had processing through each province's single medical services plan, you would have incredible savings. Third, cost-related non-adherence. That's a very fancy term to describe the concept that if you get your medicine when you need it, that is cheaper than if you don't and you end up getting far sicker down the road. The example that is always the most striking to me is diabetes. If um, you, you could give a diabetic insulin for free for life and it would be cheaper than if they go into a diabetic coma and have to spend one uh, period of time in the intensive care unit. Uh, and there's other reasons as well that it gets it gets cheaper. So it's delivering pharmacare through our medical system, uh, we know is not only the way to ensure every Canadian gets their medicine, like we do if you break your arm or you need hip surgery or whatever, but it's also, um, uh, it's also economically the smartest way to go. And the PBO found that we would save an average of $4 billion every year Wow. with universal public pharmacare. So I, I don't understand why Prime Minister Trudeau and, and his health ministers refuse to commit to this. I think it's because, to be frank, they're um, too intimidated by and too closely associated with big pharma. That $4 billion, the, the Liberals could buy so many pipelines with that if they wanted to. Well, you know, one thing I just want to say is, you know, I think Canadians, they understand that we're very proud of our public health care system. And we just have to look to the South, yeah. where we see the United States, that where there's tens of millions of Americans that don't have access to universal yeah. health care coverage, yet their per capita health care costs are higher than we pay in Canada. Yeah. So, um, you know, whether you look at Germany or UK or Australia or New Zealand or all of these countries that do have some form of universal pharmacare coverage, we know that it can be delivered cheaper and better through our yeah. public health care system. Uh, ph pharmaceutical company profits are so inflated. My undergraduate degree was in biochemistry and we got to see a little bit about the commercialization process. And it's quite cheap actually to develop drugs and so much of the research that goes into developing drugs is funded by the government yet 
the profits are so high. So it's, it's really ridiculous. And I think a deflation of that is quite necessary, actually. Um, you know, you're, you're so right. And um, I've been calling actually for broad pharmaceutical policy reform in this country. It starts with universal farm, public pharmacare, but also I think it's time that Canada created a public drug manufacturer who could work with the universities who, where you're so right, most of the research on new molecules comes from publicly funded, taxpayer funded research in our universities. They end up not having the ability to commercialize it. So they end up, uh, their work gets picked up by the private sector who then makes the profits off that publicly funded research. I think that if we used publicly funded research and combine that with a, an ability to keep the intellectual property and generate publicly manufactured pharmaceuticals to ensure Canadians could get the medicine they need at reasonable prices, that's really important. That's an important step that we should do. And Canada did have one for a period of time. We had uh, Connaught Labs uh, was, was purchased by the federal government and then the Conservatives, Mulroney government in the 80s, privatized it. So I think we, you know, we can do a lot to make sure that Canadians get access to innovative medicines at a reasonable price when they need it. And it's only been successive federal governments that I think are in the pockets of the private sector that have prevented us from this really important uh, public health need. You know, having Medicare that doesn't cover medicine is kind of an anomaly. Yeah. And, you know, we know that the original vision of, of a healthcare, of public healthcare system by Tommy Douglas, the new Democrat premier of Saskatchewan, and who forced the liberals to bring it in in the mid 60s, was that we only start with physician care and hospital care, but we gradually extend it to uh, covering pharmaceuticals and covering dental care and eye care and auditory care and mental health services. This was only supposed to be the beginning, but for 50 years we've been stalled because um, you know we haven't had uh, progressive government in this country. And that's why this time with a minority liberal government, uh, I and my NDP colleagues are working very hard to push the Trudeau government to bring it in. If they, if they don't bring it in now, when will they bring in uh, an expansion of our public health care system? So you built a great bridge. Thank you so much. We wanted to also ask about gentle care. Um, my academic background is more community health and public health. And so uh, like you, I really appreciate that you spoke about how um, physician care is like a first step. And we think about the socioeconomic factors and how many Canadians don't see a dentist unless their teeth need to be pulled or their teeth are rotting and how that impacts their quality of life and just their ability to like feel part of civic society. And I know that's something you care about as well, uh, maybe MP Davies. Uh, and so can you explain to us like how we could get dental care as a priority and like fought for, for the people and and why it's maybe something people don't consider part of health and why it should be considered part of people's health? Well, that's a great question. Thank you for raising it. I mean, I, I have to say that uh, uh, pharmacare is incredibly popular. Like, I don't think I've seen a consensus on a major public policy issue uh, like I've seen with pharmacare. There's almost, almost nobody is opposed to it except for big pharma and the insurance industry. But dental care is actually a hotter issue. And I think the reason is, is it's been estimated that at least 33% of Canadians don't have any dental coverage. And I think it's higher. And I also think that people that do have some form of dental coverage, it's often not very good coverage. There's, you know, co-payments or there's deductibles or there's annual limits. Uh, Orthodontia is not covered. 
Um, so here's the bottom line. Don't, isn't it perverse that we cover our entire body, but we carve out this piece of our mouth and we cover from the tonsils back, but we don't cover oral health care. Uh, the only infection in the body that's not covered by our public health care system is an infection in the mouth. It's perverse. And by the way, dental care was envisioned to be part of our public health care system in the 60s. It's, it's, an un, it's a very uncommonly known fact that the only reason we didn't get dental care in the 60s was because they figured we didn't have enough dentists at that time. So if you provided universal access, uh, there were not sufficient dentists per 1,000 people. That, that has not been the case for many, many years in Canada now. So we know that, um, uh, thank you so much, uh, um, Nashua, for raising the socioeconomic aspect, because to me, dental care is not only um, a healthcare imperative, but it's got very, very strong socioeconomic um, uh, reasons for it as well. So on the health side, uh, we know that your oral health is intrinsically linked to your overall health. Um, if you untreated oral health disease leads to things like cardiac problems, diabetes complications, even it's been linked to premature birth in women. Um, so it's a no brainer. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just a weird anachronism in our system that we don't cover it. And we absolutely should, we should cover it today. From a socioeconomic point of view though, it's a class issue. I mean, mm. um, many people, uh, you know, have who have covered, they have it through their their work. And so who has extended healthcare coverage and dental benefits? Well, it's people that are salaried, tends to be older, uh, people with established professions. Uh, we also know that many employers now increasingly do not offer extended healthcare benefits to employees because it's expensive. And a lot of young people are working in the gig economy. They're working on contracts. Okay. Uh, so they don't get benefits at all. So I think the gulf is widening. And, you know, you know, the, the thing is on prescriptions, the, the truth is, is that there are certain prescriptions that you can actually kind of maybe, you know, monitor your 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 consumption maybe you can skip a day etc but if you have a, a a dental problem if you have a toothache there ain't no hiding that you've got to deal with it it's in your face and the the pain is there and it must be dealt with so you're right it leads to premature extraction and then when people don't have healthy teeth um we we view it can affect people's employment opportunities career advancement never mind just their self-esteem and mental health. And I think, you know, a lot of our health is hidden, but dental health is visible to the community. And it is it is something that I think should shock the conscience of a, of a nation when we're letting people who for no other reason than they, the size of their bank account cannot get access to something so integral to self-esteem to visible physical health and to health period. So, um, you know, the, the NDP, we put dental care on the map. Um, you know, I got to say like mm -hmm. six years ago, we were the only people talking about pharmacare. And um, this parliament, we're the only people who are talking about dental care. And I think it's time to expand our public health care system to include both of those. And you know what? It, it's not that much more money. Um, it, we did a PBO report. We, we asked them to cost out what would it cost to provide immediate comprehensive dental care right now to everybody making under $90,000 a year? 
which is the bulk of people who don't have uh, coverage right now. And uh, the cost estimate was $1.7 billion a year. And that, so that would be six and a half million Canadians who don't have any dental coverage right now could have their dental care needs completely met by $1.7 billion a year. Now, in this country, every year we spend about $265 billion a year on healthcare. So you add up all the provinces and federal government, $265 billion. So I ask your viewers, would you add $1.7 billion, that $265 billion, to make sure that 6.5 million Canadians, children, seniors, adults, could get the coverage that they, dental coverage that they need? I'd make that investment in a heartbeat. All right. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, the listenership we have, I would say, is also very much precarious young people. Uh, we interview members of parliament that tend to be left. So NDP um, are some of the Green Party candidates. So definitely speaks to that audience. And it seems so minute when you look at how much is spent on healthcare. So I appreciate that answer. Um, we tend to ask our guests how they politically identify. So although we know party affiliation, uh, we'd like to get to know more about our guests. So do you, uh, you've brought up class, you've brought up, um, I would say, universal socialized medicine. So do you identify as a socialist or democratic socialist? And how do you embody NDP politics that have labor origins uh, in your everyday work and what you fight for? Well, that's a great question. You know, I, I um, um, I'm sometimes leery of labels only because I, uh, you know, it goes back to my university days. And one of the first things we have to do is get agreement on terminology. You know, what one person thinks of as a socialist isn't what another person thinks of as a socialist. And I'll, I'll give you an example in my writing here. Um, when I think of socialism, um, I think of... Um, I think of the countries, uh, the Scandinavian countries. I think of a European form of socialism um, that is based on class analysis and equality and, um, um, and making sure that uh, we have a strong public government that can provide uh, true equality of opportunity for people, uh, strong public programs like public, free public uh, education right up through university, strong public healthcare systems. Because I believe that we can accomplish collectively uh, much more than we can individually. And while I think there's a role for a strong private sector, there's things the private sector simply cannot do. So that's my vision of socialism. So I would say, yes, I identify as a, as a democratic socialist. My writing here in Vancouver Kingsway is, not a, um, is no longer a majority European, white European type of riding. It's actually the 12th most multicultural riding in the country. So it's 33% ethnically Chinese, a strong Vietnamese population, Filipino, um, South Asian, there's 112 languages. So when I say socialist, say to someone who um, is from Vietnam, uh, who, who maybe was a refugee um, after the Vietnam War, their vision of socialism is not the one I just described. To them, socialism can conjure up images of repression and, um, you know, and, and uh, lack of liberty and, and those kinds of concepts. That's not my vision of socialism. So that's why I think we, we have to, in today's day and age, uh, I'm not afraid to use the word socialist. I'm proud of it. And, and I can, uh, you know, I, I, I think it describes very accurately my point of view. But I'm also very... Um, well, what did Shakespeare say? A rose by any, any other name is but a rose. I don't think we should be, I don't think we should be a slave, slavishly adhering to terminology. 
if if that creates confusion and lack of solidarity among people that should be agreeing because that Vietnamese person probably I bet you if I just talked about the policies we'd have agreement on 99% of them if I said do you think your children should be able to get a university education regardless of of cost they go yeah do you think you should have public health care absolutely you know do you think that we should be protecting environment for sure um what's the old phrase you know 80% of people are socialists they just don't know it I think that's true so um that's a long-winded answer. Uh, I, I, I think I've had more political, political success, I think, in trying to bridge agreement and reach consensus on policies that help the broad masses of people. And that, to me, is more important than nomenclature or, or labels. I, I hear the comment about the word socialism being soured. And I think I think our relationship with the U.S. has a lot to do with that as well, which actually brings me to to my next question about Biden's win. You know, we're obviously very happy that Trump is no longer in office, but what what we see in Biden's win is that sort of coming at the expense of, for example, Bernie Sanders and and his huge movement that that came about at the U.S. And it almost seems like it's the death of socialism in America right now. Um, at least electorally. Um, and so I'm curious as to what your thoughts about that are and the ramifications, what the ramifications of that might be for Canada. Uh, excellent question. Um, before I get that, I'm just going to, I'm going to sort of tie off the end of my ask, last answer and segue into this one that the, the term that I'm sort of most comfortable with is social Democrat. So that's how I usually describe myself. But I also want to give socialism its props. Like it's, uh, and I, I think it's having a bit of a renaissance as well. And it's not a dirty word to me. I mean, you know, socialism as a, a word to me is the antithesis of capitalism. So the worship of capital in private markets, I, I disagree with. Um, socialism to me puts the emphasis on society and people. And who can be opposed to that? Uh, uh, so, so I just want to point that out that I don't think socialism is dead in the U.S. I think the contributions of AOC and the squad and Bernie and others um, have been to very courageously reassert the term socialism and place it in its proper context as a very positive force that counters this neoliberal, neoconservative, you know, worshipping of 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 private markets and 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 capital that I think has caused so much damage uh, to so many people. In terms of the Biden presidency, um, well, first of all, look, I'd have voted for a fire hydrant before I voted for Donald Trump. Um, I mean, this this person was, um, you know, unbelievably offensive, uh, you know, from dog whistle politics, sometimes overt calling out to racism. Um, and and neo-Nazis to to someone who was just a bully, just a bully in every sense of the word. I just think that uh, the 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 Trump four years has just been um, it, it's really it's almost been traumatic. It's almost traumatized not only the Amer- American public but I think the world. But let's let's face it, um, you know, t- to replace uh, that that phenomenon of. Um, bullying buffoonery that was Donald Trump with a neoliberal kind of replacement uh, that I think 
is a real danger with the Biden presidency. Uh, and I'm seeing some early warnings about that. Like I just I just read recently that they, they they may not appoint Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders to cabinet purely mm-hmm. because of their fear of, of the association with socialism. Now, by the way, uh, politics is an art as, as much as a science and there's a lot of different opinions. I personally think that the Democrats owe their success to the left-wing forces that brought them victory. So for instance, if you look at Michigan, why did Joe Biden win Michigan? Well, he won it because of Detroit. Well, Detroit had 92% turnout. Who lives in Detroit? It's overwhelmingly uh, black Americans. And so, you know, what, that, that whole defund the police and black lives matter and, and, and real appeal to working class political issues, I think helped deliver Michigan. I don't think it was the that centrist, you know, that m- move to the mushy middle uh, that uh, that I think some in the the blue dog Democrats are going to try to assert was their the reason that they uh, they won the presidency. Probably the truth is that it depends. It is a mixture. Maybe the reason Biden won Arizona was because Biden presented a very safe alternative to Trump for those sort of more conservative Democrats, but. Uh, I think it would be a real mistake if the if the Biden Harris t- uh, uh, ticket um, interprets the results of this uh, election as a rejection of the kind of working class politics that has been so strongly promoted by by the AOCs of that. And I would like to see uh, and Bernie Sanders. I think I-, I would like to see a very activist uh, Democrat presidency. And I think that's the, you know, it's funny, the right wing never apologizes for shamelessly promoting its agenda. I don't understand why the left is shy about that. Because, again, I think asking Americans if they want universal health care coverage, you know, if they want to make sure that there's, uh, you know, a, a better access to, 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 pub, to public education, uh, to make sure that the systemic racism that, is, that has long plagued the United States and still does today is really meaningfully addressed. Um, I think those are things that are popular. And, you know, I, I say this about the NDP. The left needs to uh, advance policies that are bold and popular. And I, 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 I don't think that there's a, um, I don't think that there, those things are mutually exclusive. Um, sometimes you can be bold and unpopular. Sometimes you can be tepid and weak and popular. The left's job is to be bold, progressive, and popular, and uh, we should come up with that program and take it to the people. And I think uh, I think people will respond, and I think Americans will respond to that as well. If they just see another bland, um, you know, queasy, mushy, um, fearful Democratic presidency, I think that disappoints all those people who place their faith in in in. Um, in the hope that they could do better. And uh, I think there's still some disappointment over the Obama administration, quite frankly. I don't mm-hmm. think that they were, uh, that, that that administration did as much as it could have. And Well, yeah, I mean, Black Lives Matter started under an Obama administration. You know, I agree. I, I think people, especially non-voters, who don't see the Democratic Party as somebody who, as something that is there for them, know that, under these sort of tepid democratic administrations, things just stay the same. Things don't actually get better. So you have this this situation of American politics where under Republican administration, things get worse 
And then under a democratic administration, they either stay the same or also get worse or may get better in, in like small ways. Um, and you're totally right about the need for bold ideas because people actually support them, but there's always this fear. I want to pivot a bit to talk about our relationship with the U.S. and a particular issue um, that you've spoken about is U.S.-Canada-China relations as it relates to the extradition of Huawei executive um, Meng Wanzhou. You know, that's still in the news. I, I was looking it up and, you know, she recently lost her appeal. And I think that's been a huge source of contention between Canada and China. And during the pandemic, that's not a great thing. But we also, you know, did that extradition on behalf of the U.S. and Canada-U.S. relations are are very important. And so we're kind of in the middle of this um, this polarity. Um, and I'm curious as to what you think Canada can or should be doing in these types of situations. Well, the first thing I think Canada should always do is we should assert an independent foreign policy. Um, we shouldn't be aligning ourselves with, with the United States. And we need to, um, I think we need to defend Canadian interests. And my my interest in this matter was was peaked when, and my concern was raised when Donald Trump publicly stated that he was willing to trade Madame Meng as a bargaining chip in his, at that point, trading dispute with China. Now, I'm a lawyer by training, and I have a very strong grounding in individual um, uh, constitutional rights and, and civil liberties. And I think every person is entitled to be treated objectively and fairly bef you know, before the law, uh, particularly when the full weight of the state is arrayed a, a against you. And, and, um, and so when that comment was made, it became clear to me that there were politics underneath the extradition request. You know, extradition has a, uh, it has a, a very valid purpose in law. So for instance, if someone commits a murder in Canada and they scoot across the border to Washington state, um, states have extradition treaties with each other so that they uh, people can't escape justice and being account held accountable for their, their crimes. Uh, that's the valid use of the purpose. It's not meant to be um, you know, picking off people for for political and economic reasons. And to me, and this is funny, all the people that criticize me and criticize that approach, they never answer that question. They, they, they never actually address the fact that the most powerful person in the United States publicly stated that he was willing to trade someone like they, you know, like she was just a widget in a, um, in a commercial transaction. And to me, that, that, that was the end of it. Um, the other thing, of course, is, you know, I think it put Canada in a no-win situation in the middle of a global tug-of-war between two superpowers. And the only country that's really suffered from it so far is us. You know, now we have the two Michaels that have been, uh, you know, if, if, if appearances are true, uh, were taken in retaliation. So, you know, their rights have been um, horribly um, uh, affected. You know, China took very, very significant economic uh, punitive actions against us by uh, uh, first our pork producers and then our canola oil, I think. And, you know, so what I think it's really, this is what I think it's really about. I watched Donald Trump's administration negotiate with Canada when we were renego renegotiating NAFTA. And he was, you, you know, he was bullying Canada. Why? To gain advantages for U.S. firms. 
you know, he U.S. pharmaceutical firms, big pharma, uh, big U.S. media companies. Like we we consider ourselves lucky to get out of NAFTA because we didn't have to give up that much, but we didn't gain anything. Right. I mean, the Trudeau government and uh, uh, Minister Freeland got accolades for basically, yeah. you know, just not getting horribly bruised. Yeah, that, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. So, so then when we see Trump, this is what Trump has done with the world is bully other countries uh, to try to gain advantages for big American um, business interests. And in that case, I think it's big U.S. tech because Huawei was the first uh the first uh, company in the world, they were most advanced in 5G technology. And I think what it's really about was Donald Trump trying to punish Huawei to buy time and bully other countries into not buying Huawei technology until the big U.S. tech firms could catch up. Yeah. I think that is playing a significant role in this. I mean, imagine if China sought the uh, extradition of Bill Gates. Yeah. And wanted, you know, I mean, the Americans would go crazy. Yeah. Per now, Particularly if the president of China publicly stated that he was willing to trade Bill Gates for some, like yeah. when, when he put it over, like, I don't think we do that enough in politics, by the way. I think it's my legal training uh, as well is that, you know, you're used to sort of examining things from different points of view. But if we reverse the situation, I think that can sometimes provide some really helpful clarity to how other sides might see things. And so it's not surprising to me that the Chinese would get so upset at, at something that was so transparent. You know, the, the, the so-called crime that she's uh, uh, alleged to have done, which is mislead an American bank uh, by not, not disclosing that one of Huawei's subsidiaries did some business with Iran. Do you know that there's American companies that have done the exact same thing. I think it's, um, uh, uh, is it Saks? No, there's a couple of very big American companies. And you know what? None of their executives are being charged. Yeah. So I, I just pointed this out. And what I'd like Canada to do is um, to defend our interests, to not become a, um, a, um, uh, an arm of the U.S., economic and foreign policy. And I would have liked to have seen the Trudeau government stand up more strongly for Canadian citizens and for our independence. And uh, I think it's unfortunate because here we are today, we've got the two Michaels suffering today. And, yeah. and uh, as I pointed out, I, I think that was avoidable. Yeah. And by the way, so I, I've been accused by the way, when for saying just what I said there of being somehow in the pocket of the Chinese communist party, wow. just, just for saying what I said there. Um, so I, I think that speaks to um, uh, to those of us that need to constantly defend free political expression in our country, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 avoid that group think that's done, frankly, by the corporate. I think the corporate media mm -hmm. and, and right wing sources tend to do this. Thank you, MP Davies. And we, as we wind down, we have uh, just a few more questions briefly, but. Um, this question leads really well into our next one. Uh, we're very agreed with you on the left needing bold and popular proposals and ideas to excite, especially the younger generation of voters, which we've seen in the US and I think we're seeing in Canada. And um, a few weeks ago, the global left had an important victory with uh, Louis Arce winning in Bolivia um, and Evo Morales' movement towards socialism or MOS uh, shows that another world is possible. And the Trudeau government as um, yourself and other members of parliament who are NDP have pointed out, 
and AOC, as well as Bernie Sanders, and I think Elizabeth Warren, maybe, um, Trudeau government pointed out that the elections were foreign, uh, they had foreign intervention involved. And uh, we also, Ryan and I constantly on this podcast talk about how Canada needs to have more independent foreign uh, policy that is reflective of Canadian values. And so um, we just wanted to ask you about what you think this means with seeing uh, this, this kind of, I would say, progressive victory happen. Like, what do you think that means for Canada and maybe not making statements on foreign policy or foreign interventions that happen in countries like Bolivia? And what do you think it might mean for the excitement that the world right now has for socialism or democratic socialism? Well, I think victories um, of the left and of popular movements that put people first should be celebrated everywhere. And I would add the Jacinda Ardern uh, victory in New Zealand is another great example. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. We here in North America don't tend to pay much attention to those. Um, Is it Finland as well that has a a progressive government, uh, a coalition? I think it's five women leaders of five parties. There's, and then of course, South America, the, the popular movements in South America, uh, I was really, really happy to see uh, the courage of the Bolivian people who resisted enormous uh, pressure. By the way, I wanted to say this earlier. This may be, you know, I, I don't think this is because Trump is popular uh, or progressive, but Donald Trump was an American isolationist. And to be honest, I've been watching politics for about 45 years now. I'll tell you, um, the last four years has, has seen probably the biggest reduction in American violent intervention in the world of any four-year period I can remember. Oh, wow. Now, it's not because he's you know, a peacenik. It's basically because I think he was preoccupied with American politics. Mm-hmm. But I, it's one thing I really fear. Uh, mark my words here. We can come talk four years from now. I believe the Biden-Harris uh, presidency will probably you'll see a um, reassertion of American foreign military intervention in the world. Mm -hmm. Imperialism. Yeah. I mean, there was no, I think the CIA is always involved in these kind of things, but there was not the, there was not the overt military intervention or, or support for right wings uh, movements that, that typically the U S does, which I think paved the way for Bolivia to have this enormous rejection of American attempts to interfere in there. You know, it's also interesting, the Americans, remember they were so crazed by any idea of Russian intervention in their <laughs> election. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, like the Americans overthrow democratically elected governments with coup, overt coups, you know, never mind, you know, have some social media interference. Yeah. So um, I think it bodes well. Uh, I've been very disappointed. I'll, t- I'll say this directly, the, the foreign policy of the Trudeau liberals is indistinguishable, no different from the foreign policy of the Harper government that preceded it. Yeah, you know, they the the not the NDP. We condemned the coup attempts in Bolivia and Venezuela interference in Venezuela when they were progressive governments, and the Trudeau government was supporting them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Th- this is this 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 bogus notion that the liberals are progressive this is the biggest myth in canadian politics the two biggest myths are the conservatives are good financial managers nonsense and the second was that the liberals are progressive double nonsense yeah (laughs) um if they didn't own the corporate media and they couldn't sort of re you know reestablish that narrative all the time uh i think i think it would be easier for people to see but um i've been very disappointed in the trudeau government and uh uh you know i think um I think the 21st century, I'm hoping, provides an opportunity for a renaissance of the left. You know, that sort of 
Cold War stuff that marked the 20th century is behind mm -hmm. us. I think young people really are envisioning a better world. I think the climate crisis provides a um, a, a gripping uh, focal point for us to realize that that rabid commercial uh, uh, commodification and consumerism is not only bad economics and, and harmful to people, but it's destroying our planet. And so the idea of us living in a in a more cooperative, collective, um, fair way, I think I'm really hopeful. And I, I think that it's going to be led by young people. It's time for free education, free university, universal guaranteed livable incomes, um, expanded public health care systems. Um, you know, we should be making sure nobody's living in poverty. Everybody should have a dignified place to, to call home. These are the policies that I think are the bold, popular policies that people want. And these are the policies of the left. Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I want to, as we just wind down, I want to bring it back home a little bit um, and talk a bit about the COVID second wave. Um, maybe your, your general thoughts on how it's been operated, but I'm also curious specifically whether you think a national response to COVID would have been better than the local model that we have right now, um, just given the disparities and how provinces are dealing with this um, and as health critic. Well, you know, to the extent that this is a novel a, a coronavirus and let's face it, um, this idea of a once in a century pandemic is, is not something that we were really prepared for. I, I will grant all governments some leeway in that, but what is unforgivable are not learning the lessons of the past. When the SARS uh, virus hit um, almost 20 years ago, there were two commissions that were appointed after that. Uh, one was an Ontario commission, one was federal. And the number one rule that came out of that, the number one lesson was that we should always apply the precautionary principle. Okay. Because after all, you get a novel coronavirus, you can't wait until evidence of what happens happens because by that time it's too late. You have to actually take educated, smart policy moves in advance. And I would say that Canada has done a relatively mediocre job in that respect. At the federal level, the federal government, they minimized the health impacts. They were slow to recognize uh, community transmission, slow to recognize asymptomatic transmission. They actually not only didn't, they not only weren't advocating masks. They said masking was harmful. Yeah. This is what Dr. Teresa Tam said. I know because I asked her directly in March. Yeah. And uh, so, um, you know, the precautionary principle would have said, look, we're not sure if masks are 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 uh, maybe all that helpful, but let's do, let's use them anyway. Yeah. Because even if they're five percent, and of course everybody knows masks are effective in reducing droplet-based illnesses to some degree. That's why we sneeze into our elbows. Yeah. Um, so I think there were mistakes made. Um, and to be frank, I think that, I, okay, I'm the health critic, so I can say this. The number one priority to me should be public health. And uh, the economic interests have to take a second step, uh, a second place to that. And I think where we've made mistakes is opening up the economy too fast. Whenever we put the economic interests ahead of public health, predictably, you have you have a flare up. And that's what's happened this fall. I think I think we opened up too much in the summer. And then of course, you've got people going back inside after the summer, 
you've got people returning to school, and you've got the start of the flu season, it was fairly foreseeable that we're going to have a flare up. And uh, I think we need very strong, the countries that have been successful are ones that take strong, sharp action. And I think from a public health point of view, that's where we need to improve our game. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. This We got to cover a lot of things that we didn't think we could cover domestically and internationally, and it was good getting to know you. And our audience loves the kind of conversations we've had with Leah Gazan and Nikki Ashton and Miriam Haddad, and now you're part of this roster, and Matthew Green will be part of this roster. Uh, so we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a real privilege. Thank you, Nashua. Thank you, Ryan. And uh, those uh people you're mentioning, they're the, uh, they're the brilliant, young, energetic left of our country. And I, I think uh, you're going to see big things from all those people uh, moving forward. Yeah. And where can people find you on the internet? At Don Davies on Twitter. I'm, uh, you know, if you Google me, you can find me. I'm on every platform. I'm on Facebook. My website is dondavies.ca. So I really welcome any views people have as well. If anybody uh, wants to send me their their thoughts or concepts or critiques. I'm 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 really willing to to learn and grow and and work together as we build a better Canada that's more just. You know, we didn't talk about Indigenous Canadians. I just want to. I can't leave without just a quick yeah. shout out that yeah, that um, you know, from a health point of view, Indigenous Canadians um, are below the median in every single health metric. And I think it's you know this is a vestige not only of colonialism but if we name it of genocidal policy. And I think, you know, leaving left-right politics aside, Canada really has to deal in a serious way with this profound debt. And reconciliation can't be a word. It's got to be meaningfully um, meaningfully administered in, in real policy. And when I see, you know, people still don't not getting uh, access to clean drinking water yeah. in a G7 country in 2020, that should be something that should cause uh, shame to every single policymaker and government in the country. So, because I know Nikki and Leah are doing great work in in championing that issue as well. Yeah, I think that also um, it pokes a hole on the idea that our our healthcare is universal, right? When you see the the health disparities that exist. But um, thank you so much for for taking the time. We hope we can have you back in the future. Um, where we can talk about more and different things. Happy to be to, to appear anytime you you want me. Thank you so much for your time and uh, and uh, thanks for your interest in in our policies. Great. Thank you. Hey, these episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Khan. American political episodes are co-hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande. Music and art for Habibti Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Hanano and Dawson Kimian and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibti Please. And you can find us on Twitter at Habibti Please with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content, so it's much appreciated. Yalla, let's grab some tea and shisha.